Hey, you're listening to the Canadian Agent Missional Podcast, and this is episode 64. We're continuing on with our series on the nuns and duns, those with no religious affiliation or are done with religious affiliation. In today's episode, we're going to be talking to some of the researchers that are looking at some of the data and surveys that have been conducted. What are some of the things that we've observed and what have they revealed? Let's do this. Hey everybody, thank you guys so much for joining us on this conversation today. We're continuing our series on nuns and duns, and it's such a big topic. It's such a a huge area for us to continue to unpack and understand, thinking about what does it mean to engage in this phenomenon. Bernard, Shu, and Xenia are here as always. How are you guys doing? Good. How's it going? Yo, yo. Yo, yo. All right, our two guests today are Joel Thiessen and Arch Wong. And we're going to let them introduce themselves a little bit. So, Joel, you can go first. Thanks, John. Yeah, I am a professor of sociology and director of the Flourishing Congregations Institute at Ambrose University, where I've served for uh, the last 13 years and study a lot of different topics, uh, millennials, uh, religious nuns, those who say they have no religion, congregations, and uh, fun stuff like that. Very, very cool. And you've written a book too, right? What's the title of your book? Uh, yeah, I've written a number of books, but the, the latest book on nuns uh, is called uh, None of the Above, Non-Religious Identity in the U.S. and Canada, uh, co-authored with Dr. Sarah wilkins Laflamme at the University of Waterloo. Nice. We look forward to jumping into talking about that book as well in our conversation. Arch Wong is here with us. Arch. Sure. Thanks, John. Like Joel, I teach at uh, Ambrose University, and I've been here for 21 years now. And before that, I uh, pastored at the uh, Scarborough Chinese Alliance Church for about um, 10 years before coming here uh, to Ambrose. So that's just a little bit about myself. Very cool. Very cool. Connection to our very own Bernard. Anyways, just to start off our conversation a bit, when you guys hear the terms nuns and duns, what do you guys think, Joel and Arch? Like, what are some of the things that come to mind? Why is it a topic that you guys were interested in? Yeah, I would say, I mean, I've, I've researched this for a number of years, so uh, I'll probably give a more standard academic response of what I think of when we look at the data. But, you know, those uh, who are religious nuns are simply people who check that box on the Canadian census, uh, what religion, if any, do you identify with? And they'll say no religion. And uh, that captures about 24% of the Canadian adult population and uh, 32% of Canadian millennials today. Uh, when I think of duns, there are some duns who are in that overarching nun category, but I I more commonly think of people who might identify as Christian, but no longer attend uh, religious services uh, and have some kind of grievance with the Christian church for a variety of reasons. And uh, it's a much harder group and pocket to know and understand because they aren't tied to institutional groups per se. But I would say from different research studies, I'm not sure the duns group is as large as, as many people think they are, but they are certainly an important demographic out there. Yeah, I, I think for all those reasons that Joel has stated, I guess I got interested more in the, the nuns and duns, particularly the, the duns, just particularly see, seeing the phenomenon that was happening in the Canadian church, uh, particularly, and some of the, the numbers particularly. And then how does one 
go about doing ministry along those lines, um, particularly, as Joel says, you know, with the adult population, about 24% and millennials around 32%. Yeah, it really was the numbers that got, got to me there. Joe, if I can ask, maybe we can just ask you to share a little bit about your book, maybe some of the key things that you have found about the nuns and duns in, in your research, and then just maybe like just an overview of what, what you have written about. Yeah, I mean, there's so many directions could go in, but I would say uh, one of the things that prompted Sarah and I to write this book is uh, those who say they have no religion is the fastest growing, quote unquote, religious group in Canada and the United States and the modern Western world. And so wanting to better understand, well, why is this group growing? Among whom is it growing? What particular demographics? And and how do we better understand those things? So I would say just a a few things. Um, One is that The primary pathway into those saying they have no religion today does come from those who were raised primarily within Christian homes and who, for a variety of reasons, decided to no longer identify with that Christian faith and tradition. So we unpack a number of those reasons. But we are seeing a shift towards those who say they have no religion who are raised in homes without any uh, religious background or, or upbringing. So it's a type of what sociologists would call irreligious or non-religious socialization. So this interesting shift, people who were formerly raised in Christian homes uh, are setting those religious roots uh, behind them. But now those religious nuns are having children themselves and raising their children without any kind of religion. So uh, that's a pretty significant shift and something that I think will become more pervasive moving forward, whereby uh, people have no religious background whatsoever. So we spent a fair bit of time talking about uh, those things. I would say a second thing about religious nuns is they're very diverse Uh, that we shouldn't assume just because someone says they have no religion, that they are atheist, for example, or that they're anti-religious. There's really an interesting mix. There are some people who are completely kind of a-religious. They don't really give much thought to this topic. There are some people who are spiritual but not religious. Not as many as people think uh, are found among religious nuns, uh, but certainly a demographic there. You have your more ardent atheists as well within that religious nun camp. So they're uh, a very diverse group, and it's important to keep that in mind. I think the final thing I would say, among many other topics we explore in the book, is this strong, I would say, polarization and animosity between those who say they have no religion and atheists in particular as a subset of that that grouping and evangelicals and that these groups have fairly strong and negative views toward one another. And so we unpack some of the historical reasons for why that is. And when you think theologically and practically then of of evangelicalism and and evangelicals who believe that part of their mandate is to go and share the good news, presumably with those who say they have no religion, it's probably not a good starting point when you have a, a fairly negative, polarized disposition towards the very group that you're trying to engage. So, of course, we don't talk about those theological and practical implications in the book, but sociologically provide a really good, strong background for how and why those polarizations exist. So, yeah, a few things among others that that we explore in the book. Oh, man, I don't think we can just leave it there. We have to ask follow-up questions to that. The first question that kind of popped to my mind is, as you were describing the difference between, or like kind of nuancing between, like nuns that were maybe raised in a religious household and then moved into, you know, identifying as non-religious and those who are now growing up in a household that has never had any of that in their background. Have you 
seen any reasonings of why that those shifts have been made? Have there been any kind of commonalities between the why of why people have chosen to either go in a direction of leaving the roots or deciding that even when they are, you know, in a household with none of, you know, that religious affiliation, that they have decided also not for their own children to have, you know, not that openness to explore. But I want to hear some of the whys. Like, I I hear you describe the categories to wonder why. Why is this happening? Yeah, again, there's, there's many different reasons and pathways that we talk about for, say, those who are raised within religious homes. And, and those reasons vary from they find their religious groups too conservative on a variety of issues, could be uh, sexuality, gender, politics, and so forth. There are some for whom just life circumstances happen, either they got too busy, maybe they moved away, and they were no longer tied to family or friends who were important links for them to their religious communities and, and contexts. For some, they had some kind of transition in their life where like a family member passed away who was a significant link between them and their religious communities. Sometimes they have friends outside of their religious context who had more influence or, or sway over their uh, involvement in religious communities. So yeah, there's, there's just a variety of reasons that are somewhat different for different individuals. Sometimes you have a number of these different variables that come into the fore. Sometimes you have parents who are kind of nominally connected, who, you know, brought you from time to time. And and we know sociologically that parents and family background is the single greatest influencer over a person's faith development uh, into their adult years. So uh, if your parents are kind of nominally involved, then, then these kinds of things also factor in. I think for those who don't expose their children to religion, sometimes it's just that further step or extension of how they were raised. So we talk about a, a stages of decline across generations whereby, you know, my generation is less religious than my parents' generation, who's less religious than my grandparents' generation, those kinds of things. And for others, if you've never been raised with it, there's no real reason that they would even think about why would I raise my child with religion? I mean, this is a, a socialized phenomena. We, we learn to acquire religious beliefs and practices in and through our families and other social contexts. So if you haven't been exposed to that, it's actually rather unusual for someone to suddenly kind of think, oh, I should raise my children with religious beliefs and practices. I'm also kind of curious, like what the breakdown of that nuns and duns across Canada would be like, because there's so many different cross sections of, you know, so many layers of stuff like urban, rural, suburban, the different ethnicities, East Coast, West Coast, and then you have Quebec, which is totally different. And just kind of curious, like, is there, I know it's like a broad brushstroke, but like, are there any, I don't know, large themes? <laughs> yeah, we do answer all of those questions in the book. So, you know, I, I will say when it comes to duns, we don't actually have good data to, to say how many duns there are because it's such an amorphous category. So uh, if we limit our conversation to nuns in particular, yeah, we know that the higher proportion of nuns are found in British Columbia on the West Coast. This is the same in the United States. And with a few exceptions, basically, as you move east, you have fewer proportion of nuns. And actually, Quebec, even though we think of 
Quebec is among the more secular provinces within the country alongside British Columbia, actually has the lowest rates of those who say they have no religion. It's about 12% in Quebec. And that, in part, is because people continue to identify as Catholic, even though they may not be actively involved. And so maybe you would find a higher proportion of duns in that context versus, say, in British Columbia, where you have uh, almost one in two who say they have no religion uh, with some variations uh, across different sectors. We know that younger people are more likely to say they have no religion than older demographics. Certainly uh, various ties as it relates to ethnicity, as it relates to social class, as it relates to education. So yeah, lots of subtleties and nuances within those different categories. You know, for Arch, you mentioned a little bit about your experience with an immigrant church before. You talked about kind of seeing it also from a ministry standpoint. Are you seeing the same things in terms of nuns and duns? Do you see different things? Do you see other factors that play into why people are moving in this direction? Yeah, I think Joe basically covered it well sociologically. What I do kind of see particularly, it seems to happen more in particular transition periods particularly from high school, say, to university, university to working. I mean, all those types of things that are happening. I just think about things like the silent exodus and some of the things that are happening there, uh, particularly with a younger demographic and, and the shift that, you know, that they've ha- had enough or the way that we have formed them spiritually perhaps, that they're not uh, able to cope with uh, some of the transitions moving, say, from high school to university and and so forth. And so uh, I think that, um, at least pastorally, we haven't done a really good job at that. And I think some of the sociological data does help us understand that phenomenon a little bit better and uh, hopefully improve some of our ministry practices around that. I think I just want to follow up with that too, in terms of both of you guys kind of mentioned it or hinted at it, but in terms of the nuances in ethnic communities. And like for us, you know, we like to dialogue a lot in terms of kind of the Canadian Asian context. So how have you guys seen it particularly different in ethnic communities or, you know, ethnic bodies of faith? What are some of your observations? Maybe I'll lead to some of the empirical data and then Arch can pick up maybe some of the implications of that. So we know that 20% of Asian immigrants to Canada say that they have no religion. And one of the big questions is, you know, why is that? Is that a particularly large group? And and it is actually the the second largest uh, next to those who immigrate from the United States. Uh, And there's different reasons that we may talk about later. I mean, it's, it's very difficult to be a religious nun in the United States. There's a great social stigma and cost, not that that alone is the reason why people would move to Canada. And uh, as we know, there's many other reasons as we see in the news uh, these days. But uh, one of the prevailing explanations of this 20% rate among Asian immigrants, especially those from China and Japan, is this fusion of culture and religion and spirituality and ethnicity that are all wrapped together, say, uh, you know, a Chinese culture. And when you you come to the Canadian census and you're asked about what religion do you identify with, you don't see, like, Chinese is not an option. The ways of the Western categories that we use for thinking about ethnicity and religion and so forth doesn't come up. And so no religion is often the default uh, response there. 
there. And it's actually an area that's understudied. We don't know very much then about what exactly does that no religion category mean for this 20% of Asian immigrants. We only know primarily at the descriptive level that it exists, that for sure there are different broadly understood spiritual practices among some of those individuals, but how those are talked about lived, experienced. Yeah, we're, I would say sociologists and religious studies scholars are starting to give a little bit more attention to that. I think particularly that 20% and how that is kind of shown, I think about the formation particularly of folks, you know, children, for example, in in the home setting and even in church settings and how that uh, kind of looks like and some of the weak uh, socializations that sometimes happens. And particularly, I just kind of think about Enoch Wong's book uh, addresses a little bit about, about that as well. I mean, I just kind of think more in terms of identity formation and how that is being done and um, not done well, uh, or that we haven't uh, taken good opportunities to guide and help folks form in the Christian faith. And as Joel said, I think a good good predictor oftentimes is religiosity or, or spirituality, how that's expressed in the home and particularly with parents. Yeah, I just, I find it interesting when Arch, you're mentioning some of the practices that may kind of turn off, you know, the next gen. It makes me think about you know, if immigrant churches are planted with a certain way of doing church, the ecclesiology and, and the way that it's supposed to be, it's interesting, like, you know, let's just say from Hong Kong and you move that Hong Kong church over and then they have a specific way that they are doing it. And now they're trying to, you know, plant that church and impact the children of those people. You know, it could be a Korean church, you know, coming over from, from you know, South Korea and then like they're... Uh, planting this this Korean church, and now their children who are now impacted by you know Canadian culture, Western culture, it's definitely you know changing how they're being engaged. So I think it's almost like immediately there's almost like a a disconnect right off the bat. I, I guess when I'm hearing what you're saying about practices that they can improve, like what are things that you think that it could improve towards, especially with you know there is that cultural gap there. I mean, that's a good question. I just kind of think about some of the things that we've been doing at the Ocean Congregations Institute around evangelism, for example. That's where I kind of see, at least from some of our survey data, and we did survey over about 9,100 congregants, and we asked questions around evangelism. And we asked questions around, you know, do you verbally share your faith or do you show your faith through actions, right? Or would you invite a non-Christian friend to a church, and what we see in some of that survey, participants were likely to show their faith more on a monthly basis versus those who would verbally share their faith or even invite someone to their church. So we did some denominational comparisons with that as well. And I thought that some of the comparisons were strikingly interesting to me in that regard, particularly with denominations. So What I'm trying to get at is uh, some of our our data indicates that most congregations' growth is really explained through through transfer growth, actually. And so I think this pattern probably would be followed by second and third generation Asian Christians. And so, but this is where, Shu, how, how I can answer your question is, what makes it interesting to me, at least, is that immigrant or first generation congregations 
you know, this whole idea of verbally sharing one's faith and making a decision for Jesus is a theological priority in that way. So you have this background where first generation of immigrants are, are uh, expressing verbal sharing uh, of the faith. And so we do have that background, right? But most likely our second and third generations were, would probably more like the general population where they would show their faith through action or may, may not uh, invite their friends to, to church. Like definitely I see it in my own context. I think with a lot of my congregation, for example, there's a lot of people who would, they feel more inviting. They would yeah. rather invite people in and be more relational and, and, all, and a lot of that kind of relational evangelism or whatnot more than ever. And, and I could see that, that at times has more of that Western impulse. But then is that there's a bit of that kind of Eastern side where it's just like, well, we want to create this identity, invite people in this community. But then, you know, we're taught to really verbalize about Jesus, about sharing the good news, sharing the gospel. But then that is not necessarily transferred to the children and, and the culture that they're engaging. So they feel, well, the ways that you taught me may be kind of outdated or not, you know, contextual relevant to where I'm at. So I, I definitely see where you're talking about on that. Yeah, and they're then in this liminal space, actually trying to, to figure that out. And I would say then in terms of, say, evangelism strategies, what works best for nuns and duns, you know, in that way? And how do you invite them to consider or at least have serious conversations about that? And especially in this kind of Wikipedia internet generation where the information's at your fingertips, that, that changes the game too, where before, you know, you didn't have to know everything, but now it's almost like pastors or supposed stronger leaders should have known all these things, should have equipped everybody for everything. But clearly that may not be possible. <laughs> But I also wonder, like, in our current climate of COVID-19, this kind of strange global pandemic, like how that would shift, you know, people's orientations and openness to kind of faith conversations. Because, you know, even in my own anecdotal experiences, like I've had so many conversations with people who are just open. I don't meet them physically, but we are Zooming. Uh, for people who have zero religious experiences, but they are you know, open to like, yeah, I know, you know, you're, you're a pastor. Can you pray for me? You know, stuff like that. And, and so it's like, I'm curious to, to kind of see what COVID-19 may bring out for better or for worse, I guess. I need to talk to some of those people, man. I, I haven't had that experience, but. <laughs> well, I mean, like we interviewed Andrew Root a little while ago, you know, a big part of what he's, what he emphasizes is about, you know, that transcendent experience with God. And I feel like, when you are in in crisis mode, like what do you what do you look forward to, right? But if we kind of perceive most people living this kind of, you know, like pretty affluent and, and you know your life is full, like there is no need for like that transcendental moment. But we just have a global pandemic, and I think like we're just brought into those spaces. Yeah, the the one thing I would add there, leaning into some of our data and interviews with religious nuns, uh, is that I think we might assume that things like COVID or, or other kind of major crises like this would draw a number of religious nuns to be more open. And I think for some that is true, but I think that's more the exception than the norm. And uh, again, some of that comes back to the ways in which we're socialized. And you know, we, we spend a lot of time looking at meaning 
among religious nuns? How do they form meaning? How do they think about meaning? And the data is pretty clear that quite apart from religion, they feel like their lives are full of meaning uh, in and through their relationships, their jobs, their volunteer activities, their social ties, etc. And I think it's a helpful reminder for those within congregation settings to understand that religion is and Christianity is a source of meaning, but not necessarily the source of meaning when it comes to religious nuns. And this can be a pretty difficult cognitive leap to make within religious contexts because I think religious folks will say, yeah, but you don't have real meaning. And and religious nuns will say, actually, no, I'm 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 good. And so you're absolutely right, Bernard, that instances like COVID and other things of, of pretty significant background like this can create greater openness, but it isn't necessarily, not that you're assuming this or or inferring this, but it isn't necessarily kind of across the board for most religious nuns to pick up with that and and run. Actually, to jump off of that point, maybe we should just have Dr. Andrew Root on this podcast too, because I think he's a dialogue partner for us, you know, what reading his book and material, but he talked about Charles Taylor's material and saying how you know, in a situation like today, in, in our current day, current context, that just as much if there are people who can be crossed up in their the Christian religion or evangelical kind of tradition, and they're crossed up and they're like, I don't, I'm, not, I'm done with this, or even like, I, I don't need this anymore, or that kind of thing. There's just as much possibility on the other end, people who question that where they are as a nun. The questioning to go, you know, away from it can also create the same kind of societal conditions to come back in by another group. I don't know. We're leaning also on the data that Joel and, you know, Arch are looking at. Yeah, I think there's one important qualification to that, and and it is among those religious nuns who are raised as religious nuns who have no religious background. And this is the big question mark for scholars to pay attention to moving forward is if you haven't had any kind of religious background, are you potentially more open to the very things that you've just described because you haven't been kind of tainted or spoiled, uh, those who were raised in religious homes and left it? And so we don't have enough of a period of data to actually track and see if that is the case, but it's certainly a plausible hypothesis that's out there and we're going to give some tension to, to see how that plays out moving forward. Yeah, I remember sitting in on a talk by Jamie Robertson and he was describing the history of Quebec and how like this phenomenon was kind of happening there where the religious nun has been so removed that they're now curious about the mysticisms of these giant church buildings. They're like, what is this? And then, you know, they explore it and they're like, oh, this is a church. It's kind of fascinating. Yeah, I was just thinking about it sort of from a pastoral point of view. I'm thinking about, well, how do we help some of our church people navigate relationships with these religious nuns and duns. We were just talking about this impulse to project our own myths onto them. But how do we actually engage in a way that kind of goes in understanding the Imago Day in which they're made in and we can and we can respectfully and and in a way that honors them, engage with them. I'll offer me a few opening thoughts and then Arch maybe piggyback off of this. I mean, social ties with with friends and family members are super, super important. It's the number one reason a person joins a new religious group because a family member or friend invites them into that community. And we see this across religious traditions. So uh, it is certainly the starting point. I think uh, the ability to listen well 
is really, really important to not project things, to pay attention to people's stories and lives and experiences, and to possibly look for synergies between the, the good news and how that uh, aligns these, these narratives of hope that are so central and pivotal to the Christian narrative and the biblical story, uh, I think are, are invaluable things within this discussion. Uh, the other thing that I would add is one needs to be well-versed in their own Christian faith. I mean, you talked earlier about the the Wikipedia uh, realities here where you either can go online or just defer to other experts, which is not going to be particularly helpful when it comes to engaging one's peers when you're out at a coffee shop, for example, or whatever it is that one does with their friends, that you need to be theologically astute. I mean, we think and talk about local religious leaders as resident theologians, and whether you like this or not, uh, you're shaping the theology of those in the congregation because they don't actually know the scriptures that well. They don't actually know how these different pieces fit together. And so, equipping and empowering those within our our churches and congregations toward that end is really important so that they have a solid or a better understanding of their own faith when engaging with some of their peers and friends along the way. So, those would just be some initial thoughts that I have and Arch, maybe you have some other things to build on. Yeah, maybe I can just piggyback on that a little bit, Joel. I just kind of think just in general, creating these spaces, these safe places to to explore and to engage with uh, nuns and duns, I think is important. I think the other thing is for us, and I think this is what Joel is trying to get at a little bit, just about our own dispositions and answering the why questions, why we want to be uh, engaged with them. Uh, oftentimes, I mean, who likes to be a project of somebody, right? And so if we kind of think about them created in the image of God, uh, the Imago Dei, then I think that really, really helps us in where we sit and where our disposition is. So I think, again, just opening up these honest conversation spaces where that can be done, I think might be helpful. I think one of the things that we found, and Joel can kind of speak on this, particularly in our national survey, uh, believe it or not, the place of Alpha, where conversations, religious conversations uh, do have the, the possibility of opening up conversations around that. And it's done in a communal context, in a small group, and hopefully that provides that safety to explore and to, to engage in, in, that, in those ways. Yeah, that last point, Arch, is, is really important because one of the things we saw unequivocally in our national survey data is people are uh, either afraid to share their faith or they feel ill-equipped to do so. And so things like Alpha can be a really helpful tool and resource to help train and equip people within one's congregation. And churches can play a really pivotal role in helping its members to actually develop the abilities and capacities and courage and so forth forth uh, when it comes to engaging with one's friends. Awesome. Thank you guys so much. As we wrap up this episode today, and we really appreciate you guys offering hopeful stories and narratives for us, and we want to be able to leave this conversation today with a sense of hope. You know, is there any last word you'd have for us or kind of a hopeful story to add on what you've already said? Yeah, I think thinking creatively and imaginatively 
is is really important to take risks and try new things hopefully they're educated and informed so i think of congregations who you know they looked at the demographics around their church community and they had a high university age population and so they kind of pulled the university age group around and said what are the things you're looking for and they said we we just love a place to study and we're looking for uh, food and so the church just opened their door like every wednesday night you can come and you can hang out and study and we're going to feed you not that evangelism is the primary driving target there. It's just how do you how do you foster opportunities to build relationships with others and leveraging the social ties that you have or hosting conversations then in and through that on issues of the day. There's no shortage of things in the news that people have thoughts and opinions on and oftentimes uninformed thoughts and opinions. So how do we inform those in helpful ways and creating space for dialogue in and through local church contexts? We've heard stories and experiences of that that I think we're just churches that we're willing to think imaginatively and creatively that those things stand out to me. I just kind of, again, go back to uh, the Asian church and I think about formation and how that kind of looks. You know, as I kind of look at some of the literature, particularly around intergenerational dynamics of Chinese North American, say, Christian families, some of the, the research has really thought about or they have theorized about how you know, Chinese churches have provided these kind of novel ways of living out, say, family life in the ways they go about, you know, addressing family needs and, and conflicts. So, for example, you know, Christianity really does provide a good critique about some of the extremes of, say, generational hierarchies that you find in Asian homes and in Asian churches. You know, the whole idea of, you know, piety and Maybe you can connect with this with, about emotional control. So I think especially if Asian duns, say in their religious upbringing, if I think if pastors and, and leaders in churches might encourage, say, more open communications, and, you know, find less ways of controlling for parents really to engage with one another and say in parent-child relationships uh, with children, you know, while at the same time trying to maintain, you know, this communal sense of identity in that way, I think it might go a long way for family life and faith formation in our churches. That's so awesome. Thank you both so much for your time and for joining us on this conversation. And you've given us a lot to continue to think through and work through. And hopefully we can reimagine together what does it mean to minister and to engage our communities and our context in different ways, in creative ways, like Joel, you were saying, and, you know, Archie, you were saying too, about like how we can kind of re-engage in the family systems and bring about some of those conversations as well. So thank you guys so much for your time today. And we really appreciate you guys. And thank you to all of you for tuning in today to our episode. Make sure you check out the Flourishing Congregations Institute that Joel and Archer are part of. The link is down in the description below to check out some of the work that they are doing. Also, please remember to rate and review and subscribe to our podcast on whatever platform you're listening to. That helps us to get this conversation out there and you also won't miss another episode. We're going to be jumping into more stories as we continue this series. we got a couple more coming up, many experiences to listen to and lots to continue to learn. We'd love to hear what you think and how you are wrestling with what Joel and Art shared today. We'd love to hear from you. You can reach us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, or by email, contact.campodcast at gmail.com. That's contact.campodcast at gmail.com. 
Let us know how this is playing out in your context and what you are observing. On behalf of Shu, Bernard, and Xenia, you've been listening to the Canadian Asian Missional Podcast, and we hope you'll join us on this journey. See you next time.